Well, as we continue our study through the prophecy of Hosea, we come to Hosea chapter 8. The darkness of the people, the darkness of the land is getting, well, more dark as we go. But it still does not mean that there is no hope whatsoever. There is always hope with the eternal God who is quick to forgive anyone who turns to him. Hosea 8, I'll read the entirety of the chapter. This is the word of the living God. Let's give attention to it, even as it's read in your hearing this night. Hosea chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord. Because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel, a craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria Samaria shall be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind... And they reap, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads, it shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. They have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up, and the king and princess shall soon writhe because of the tribute. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt, for Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. Amen. This is the word of the living God. The subject of farming, of course, is not something that I'm all that familiar with. I've never been a farmer, though my great-uncle was. But I do know enough to know that if I put a seed in the ground, eventually I can expect under normal circumstances, normal um, uh, situations, I can expect whatever seed that's placed in that ground to grow. If I put corn in the... uh, If I plant corn, I expect to see corn eventually given all the other factors that are necessary. If one plants an apple tree, I would expect to see apples eventually on a tree. We know, of course, that these things don't grow immediately. We don't stick the seed in the ground and see the fruit of it the next morning. It takes time. It takes cultivation. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of things that are really out of your hands, like water and the sun and the things that we don't have any control over. Uh, But we know that it takes time. The same is true spiritually. The same is true in the Christian life as uh, as we learn and understand that the things that we are doing, our behavior, our actions, and the way we are living our lives is sowing into the ground certain things. The question, of course, as we consider this eighth chapter is, what exactly are you sowing for the people of Israel, they were sowing unrighteousness. It's pretty obvious from the, ch- uh, the chapter, as you heard it read, and as I was reading it, it well, it's not exactly the greatest of news. It, it's somewhat dark, and it's somewhat depressing, and it's somewhat disturbing. But he's writing it to the church. He's not writing it to the world. He's not writing this to the so-called unregenerates. He's writing it to professing Christians. He's writing it to the visible communion of saints. He's writing it to the people of God. It's quite clear right up front in the chapter, as is the entirety of this prophecy, it has been aimed at the church, the visible church, the people, in this case, who are sowing destruction into their lives. They don't seem to think it's a problem. 
because nothing seems to be happening. God doesn't seem to be responding all that egregiously immediately as they sow this wickedness, this idolatry, this adultery, and all the other things that we're going to cover this evening. God doesn't seem to be responding with meteors falling out of the sky like he did with Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, But in time, the fruit of the sown seed of evil and wickedness manifests itself in the judgment of a faithful, just, and holy God. It can be no other. For God to be God, He must punish sin. For God to be God, He must deal with sin in the church. For God to be God, He must honor His own word. Whatever you sow, you will certainly reap. Do not be deceived, because God is not mocked. What are you sowing? In your life. You profess to know Jesus Christ. That's good. Great. What are you sowing? Are you sowing destruction, unrighteousness, evil? Are you sowing things that you know displease the God of heaven? Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you're sowing, he will eventually reveal. Oh, but it's been years. He will eventually reveal. God is not going to be mocked by man. He's not mocked by the people that he loves here in Hosea 8. He's not mocked by us. Now, of course, there's always a solution, as I've already mentioned, intimated earlier. There's always a solution to any of these things. As we examine our lives and we do so under the rubric, the lens of this eighth chapter, we recognize that this is awful, and probably you're going to see some of you in this Chapter, what do you do? Throw up your hands, give up hope, we're doomed. No, you repent, you turn away from those things that you've been sowing and plead the mercy of God and help. And he gives the grace and the mercy that only he can give. The prophecy of Hosea is turning to a very dramatic moment here in this chapter. The imminency of judgment is at hand. The tree is about to bud. It's about to bear fruit. It's not good fruit. It's rotten fruit. That which the people of Israel have been sowing for hundreds of years is about to come to fruition as they failed to listen to the prophets before, as they failed to hear from the God of heaven, as they failed to heed the warnings that he gave to them time and time again, much like pastors do from pulpits all across this country, warning the people of God And now the judgment is here. They are on the edge. They are on the precipice. They are on the the eve of a cataclysmic judgment that will come to the northern kingdom, primarily as Hosea is prophesying. But it comes not because God doesn't love them. It comes because first God is God and he is holy. And he will not and he does not trifle. Uh, with sin. He certainly will not trifle with it in the lives of his covenant people. And so this evening, I want to show you just very simply, whatever you sow, you will certainly reap. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. People may not see or hear the things that you're doing, But I can assure you, brothers and sisters, the God of heaven is watching everything we do. Children, you're not getting away with it. I'm not getting away with it. But God in his kindness and his mercy gives us his word, gives us the preaching of it, that we might turn away from it before it's cataclysmically too late, before he judges severely through the discipline of the church and other means. I want to show you that whatever you sow, you will indeed reap three points as we consider this eighth uh, chapter. First, the warning of judgment, and then the reasons for judgment, and then the lesson of Jehovah. Okay, I know that's not, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not, um, well, it's not my typical um, alliteration that I like to use to be 
helpful for you to remember, but I didn't know what to do for that third point. But I had to put it in there, and I couldn't come up with a way to do it. So you'll just have to bear with me. you get the point anyway. First, the warning of judgment, the reasons then for judgment, and then the lessons that Jehovah gives to us, the church, today through these things that we will consider in this eighth chapter. The warning of judgment, first and foremost, it is imminent. The atmosphere, the ethos, the tone of chapter 8. Just listen to the words that open the chapter. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord. Not the house of the nations of the world. The covenant people the visible church of old. There's an imminency here. The image presented by the prophet displays something of its imminency, its immediacy. It's the idea of putting something to one's lips. Now, again, I'm not a musician, but I'm smart enough to know that if I put a trumpet up, if I see you put a trumpet up to your lips, I can expect momentarily to hear something come from that trumpet. You're not just doing it. In fact, the Hebrew is even more striking here, as opposed to the, as, as it relates to the English word, it is a really um, trumpet to your lips is the literal rending, rendering. The judgment is imminent. It's there. It's coming. It's right on the edge because of their evil. The idea of judgment is here that sets the frame for the entirety, really the entirety of the prophecy, but chapter 8 and very much particular. The judgment of the Lord over the wicked of the land. It has been imminent, really, since the day of the Lord. Really, since sin came into the world. But it's been more imminent, hasn't it been, as we refer to these times in our lives and the life of the church as the end days, of the end times. No, we are not dispensationalists, okay? It's been the end days since Christ ascended. God's judgment has been withheld. It's been suspended, so to speak, until all of the nations hear the gospel, until all of the nations hear of the hope of Christ, until all the elect are brought in to the kingdom. And then the end comes. But here's the thing. You don't know when that is, and neither do I. I don't know how many elect God is determined to save. I don't know what that number is. I know it's finite, but I don't know what it is. For all you know, the last elect person ever was rescued this morning. Judgment then sits at hand. Every Lord's Day, the judgment of the Lord, the warning of judgment, is given in its proclamation in the word proclaimed. It's not the only thing you hear in sermons, but it is something you do hear. Turn away from your sin. Repent of sin. Don't give in to the ways of the world. Don't act like the world. Stop living like the world, as the Apostle John would say, and a host of other types of warnings. As in those days, those warnings, they were not heeded. Too often in the church today, they're not heeded now. I don't think I need to remind you just how bad things are in our culture, in our world. Look at the battles we are facing and dealing with. But look at the things that the church itself is doing as well. The world is rebelling against the Lord, but worse, worse than that is that there are are some in the visible church that sit in pews week after week, hear the preaching of the Word of God, sing praises, confess their faith. They too are rebelling And friends, those people will face a greater judgment than even the wicked and unrighteous that don't know the Lord, have never professed to know the Lord. The writer to the Hebrews makes this abundantly clear in Hebrews 6. Of those who have tasted of the goodness of God, 
have benefited, you covenant children, you have benefited, you've been privileged to sit in a church, to hear the word of God read and proclaimed, the oracles of the faith. You've seen, you witnessed the sacraments of the church. You come because in God's kindness, he's given to you parents who love the Lord and they bring you here that you might hear these things. Will you heed them or will you rebel? You see, for you, it's worse. The judgment is worse than it would be if you never heard the gospel itself. Two images are given by the writer here, the prophet, to heighten this idea of judgment. I've already mentioned the trumpet. It's a meeting that's often used to warn others of impending doom. It heightens that imminency of the coming judgment. It is an alarm that goes forth through the land. The trumpet today is the preaching of God's word. The call to repent of sins committed against the Lord. It is applied to both the church and the world. Repent and believe the gospel is the trumpet call to everyone everywhere. You know, that's a command. Repent and believe the gospel. It's a command. God tells you to do that. Will you do it? Will you heed his call? Then he gives this other image, this one of a vulture. Now, I think we all know what a vulture is. Again, I'm not a bird expert, but I can tell you a vulture, when I see one, I know what it does. It's a scavenger. It's a bird of prey. But more to the point, the use of this word vulture here has direct connection, direct allusion to the Assyrians. Now, the Assyrians, as you know, if you know your Bible history, the Assyrians are the nation that's going to come and execute the judgment of God that he's warning them of here. They're going to come in and they're going to take the ten tribes of Israel. They're going to take them into exile. In fact, the NIV renders this Hebrew word here not as vulture as you see in your ESV, but it renders it as eagle. You might think, well, those are very different birds. Yes, they are. (laughs) And why does it do that? Because often in Assyrian art, the eagle was prominent. But whatever it is, whatever way you want to translate that particular word, the fact still remains. It doesn't change the point. God is saying, look, blow the trumpet because judgment is coming and here's where it's coming from a pagan nation a godless nation that does not know me does not care about me and i'm going to use them to judge you can things get much worse pagan people godless people are going to judge the visible church for their behavior standing behind all of this judgment is not the assyrians It's not the armies of the Assyrians. It's not the leaders of the Assyrian nation. Standing behind it, the actor in this judgment is the God of heaven. It is Jehovah who will enact justice and judgment on the people of God. This warning and eventual acting will come at his hands, the hands of a holy God who alone punishes sin. You see, on this point, though, we can take a certain degree of comfort Though the righteous often suffer with the wicked, even in the visible church, we know that our God will judge in righteousness. In other words, this judgment that he puts upon his visible church, not every single person in Israel were wicked. Not every single person in Israel were godless. Not every single person in Israel hated the God of heaven and acted like they did. But, but, oftentimes... The church suffers, the visible church suffers because of wickedness. And the righteous there suffer along with them. But because God is the one doing the judging, it is done perfectly, it is done in righteousness, it is done in holiness, in great wisdom, mindful of the, as it were, innocent in the church itself. Why does he do this? Why is it that God responds this way? Well, because he has been attacked. You might think, well, Israel is being attacked by the Assyrians. That's true. But he has been attacked by the visible church. He's been attacked by the people who profess to know this God. 
in the way they live their lives. His character is under assault. His name is being abused and misused. His ordinances are being disregarded. Even if he were to give them a thousand more laws, they would act as though they never heard one. I think I read that. You see, it is God that is being offended. And God then must respond, and he warns the church to hear what he has to say. Now, what are the reasons for this judgment? Well, we've seen many of them already through this prophecy, but then in chapter 8, we get some more. We get glimpses of the things that the people of Israel have been sowing in their lives for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. And they're about to reap the whirlwind. The patience of God is about to expire. What are those reasons? Well, first, in verses 2 through 3, we have false hopes. Look what it says. To me, they cry, this is Jehovah speaking, my God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. In the words of one commentator, the people think they know God, but they do not. Oh, they know things. They could probably recite the Ten Commandments. They probably, know, they probably memorize certain Bible verses. They probably know where to find things in the Bible. Maybe they memorize the shorter catechism. Okay, now I'm being a little ridiculous, of course, because that's much later, but you see where I'm going with this, right? Maybe they attended every Bible study held by the local tabernacle. Maybe they went to seminary. Studied for four years, theology and Greek and Hebrew. and I don't know them. They know a lot of things, but they don't know God. These words echo the very words of the Savior at the end of Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. Many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things? Memorize the catechism, go to seminary, go to Bible studies, come to church every Sunday. Didn't we do all these things? And what does he say to them? I don't know who you are. Who are you again? Remind me, because I don't know you. You think you know me, but I don't know you, and that's the problem. These people have false hopes. It is demonstrated, their, 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 their lack of knowledge is demonstrated not in what their mental acuity can say. It is demonstrated because they're disobedient to the covenant as expressed there at the end of verse 1. They have transgressed my covenant. They know it, but they don't do it. They've rebelled against my law. They can quote it, but they don't care about it. How often in the church are we much the same way? We profess to know the Lord Jesus Christ. We profess to know the God of heaven. We profess to love him, but then when we look at our lives and we examine what is going on and the things that we are sowing into the ground and we realize if we're honest with ourselves, none of that is true. It's just words. I've often said this to my wife, and I probably will say this as long as I continue ministering, and probably even after, that I think a lot of people, many people, some people, I can't quantify it. I don't know what that number would be. But I do suspect that there are some in the church who've been living a lie They've been deceived. They know many things. When they die, they are going to be in a shock of their lives. You see, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. God is angry. His people say the right things, but they don't do what he says. They are sowing deception. They are convincing themselves of that which is not true. We know you. No, you don't. But the truth of the matter is that they know not the God of heaven. They are sowing to themselves a life of deception. They are sowing a life of outward show with absolutely no inward reality. I was baptized in the church. Good. 
Is there an outward show with no inward reality? Yes, it is true, of course, just like it was in those days. It is true today that you and I, who truly know the Lord, sin daily in thought, word, and deed. But we're not content with that fact. We don't even like that fact, do you? You just ho-hum, who cares, so what? No, it's just a fact. No big deal. I'm a Christian. It ought to grieve you. Why? Because of this indwelling sin that I'd like to get rid of. Thank you very much. If the Lord would just return, it'd be done. No more battle with it. No more possibility of deception. No more possibility of transgressing. No more possibility of offending a holy God. These people have false hopes. They place their trust in a God they do not know. Second, they have false leadership. Again, quoting the same individual, the people think they, they rule under God, but they do not. You see this in verse 4. They make kings, but not through me. This is not an attack, of course, on the divine sovereignty of a holy God. He's making a point. They make kings, they set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. Pull out a dollar bill from your wallet. I don't even have my wallet on me, so I can't, but I wouldn't anyway. I don't think I have any money in it anyway. Well, it doesn't matter. Look at it. What's it say on that money? In God we trust. Really? Does the United States trust God? Hardly. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's on the money. We erect people that God does not know. Godless people. But you know, it's a shame when that comes even to the very church itself. We know the leadership of our nation does not seek the honor and glory of the true and living God. What about the officers in the church? Oops. Well, you're hitting a little too close to home. Can you, like, back off that application train just for a minute? No. Are they there to serve the living and true God, or are they to serve, there to serve their own agenda? Are they there to do what they want to do and instead of doing what God would have them do? Do they serve at the will of the God of heaven, or are they serving their own end? If it's the latter, they are sowing the wisdom of this age and not the will of a holy God. And what happens then? Well, it leads the people right off a cliff. Think of the northern kings that Hosea is talking about. <laughs> you want a lesson in depression? Just read of the northern kings of Israel. Not a one, not a one was righteous. They were all wicked. You read of it. So-and-so took the throne and he did what was evil. In the sight of the Lord. Boy, one king after another, after another, after. It's depressing to read. They've erected this leadership that is not interested in the God of heaven. They're interested in their own belly, their own destruction, their, their own appetites, their own agenda. And it leads to destruction. Unrighteous leaders in the church will lead to the downfall of the church, and this God cannot be and will not be pleased. Third, not only are there false hopes, sowing of false hopes and deception, sowing bad leaders, there's false help. If you notice, they all start with false. Verse 7, verses 7 through 10, really could include verse 6, but... A, I'll just stick to my outline. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already. Already. Assyria hasn't even come yet. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. 
That's encouraging. Think on that as you lay down tonight in the bed. For they have gone up to Assyria of all people. Really? The people of God have aligned themselves with the enemy. A wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up, and the king and princess shall soon writhe because of the tribute. False help. The people turn to find help from the impending judgment by looking to others instead of the God of heaven. Let me go over here. I'll get help, and God will stay his hand of judgment. Let me go over here and get help because the... What does God want them to do? What has he been compelling them to do for hundreds of years? Turn to me and live. It reminds me of the very words that Moses gave to the second generation of the people of Israel right at the end of Deuteronomy when he gives them a choice as they stand on Mount Gerizim and the other mountain. I forgot its name. But anyway, choose life. Covenant cursing or curses and blessing and choose the blessings. Choose me, not the things of this world. There's no help there. That will not stop the judgment of God. How often do we in the church seek to find our help in mere man? Yes, our friends and family can assist us, but the ultimate help for our sin, and this sin is great, they cannot do a thing about They can't atone for your sin. They can't save you from your sin. They can't forgive you for your sin. Only God can do that. The help you need is the Savior. God is their Savior. He is their Redeemer. He appeals to them. Look, don't find your help in the pagan nations around you. Don't find your help in mere man. The help that you need comes from me. You need to hear from me and turn away from your sin. Stop sowing stupid things into your life that will only end in destruction. Look at, his, what, look at where they look for help to their enemy. That'd be like the church today looking to the world for solutions. And you know what? It happens all the time. The philosophical ideologies that the world pumps out and the church adopts. You want to grow a church? Adopt the business strategies, uh, methods of the world, and and you'll have hundreds of people sitting in the pews. Not on my dead body. No, no. God is going to help with that. Thank you very much. These people are looking in all the wrong places for the answer, the solution to what ails them. Fourth, they have a false religion. (laughs) They have a false religion. Verses 11 through 14. I'm not going to read the words. I've already read them. Again, quoting, people think religion saves, but it does not. Now we have to be careful here and note that mere external acts will not save a soul. This is the problem for these people. They're religious, but there's no reality. The word religion is not a bad word. It's not a horrible word, but in this case, it's awful. It's like the Pharisees of the days of Jesus. On the outside, everything looks grand. On the inside, it's putrid. They have false religion. Quoting one commentator, he says, Our religious duties can be sinful acts. Let that sink in for a minute. What? Yeah. You said the Lord's Prayer this morning, right? You remember, do you know what you said? Were you engaged? That was a religious duty. You did it. Great. Were you praying? Or was it just words? If it was just words, it was a sinful act. Prayer? Yes. How about coming to church? I'm here, but I don't want to be here. I got a bad attitude. Oh, it's a religious act. It's sinful. These people, that's what they're doing. They're going through the motions. Checking the boxes, God sees the heart. He knows. They're just religious. 
There's no truth in them at all. They are simply going through the motions, thinking that that will save them. And it won't. And it didn't. A, B, C, D, E. Fifth, they have false worship. Verses 4 through 6. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. Hmm. Now it gets really interesting. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel. A craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria Samaria shall be broken to pieces. The sowing of deception and unrighteous leadership and false religion and all of these other things that I've already said leads to perhaps the most abominable of all the transgressions of the Old Testament church, and that is false worship. You see, God is jealous, jealous for His worship. Maybe you wonder why we worship the way we do. Yes, I could fill this room. I could. We'd have to have two services every Lord's Day morning. All I've got to do is stop doing it the way God wants. Offer all sorts of strange worship and strange fire. Ask Nadab and Abihu how that worked out for them. Sowing of deception and unrighteous leadership leads to perhaps the most abominable of all the transgressions of the Old Testament church, false worship. Indeed, it is not the God of heaven they worship, but in direct violation of the law of God, they turn themselves to idols. And there is here an implicit mention. I don't know if it's all that implicit, really. I think it's explicit. Of that tragedy that occurred on the plains of Sinai in Exodus 32. Tragic. What a horrible event. You know the story, remember? Moses on the mountain. The people get nervous. He's been gone too long. He's only gone 40 days. What do they do? Hey, Aaron, make us a calf. Let's call it the God of heaven who saved and rescued us from Egypt. Let's worship it and dance around it like a bunch of idiots. That's what they did. God looks down from heaven, from the mountain, and he says to Moses, you need to get off this mountain. Why? Because my people have profaned themselves. No, that's not what he told them. What did he say to them? him? Your people have profaned themselves. I don't want anything to do with them. And he almost didn't. Implicitly given to us is that reference when he mentions the calf there, in verse, um, in verse 6, but also implicit here is the reference of 1 Kings 12, 26 to 30. You don't need to turn there if you don't want to. I'm going to read, just read those verses, make a couple comments about it. 1 Kings 12, 26 to 30. I'm jumping right into the middle of a, a significantly longer context, yes, but the point still remains. This is the catastrophe of Jeroboam. Now, you remember that the, the, the two first two kings of the divided kingdom were Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And it's easy to confuse who goes where. Is Rehoboam the king of the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom? Well, the easy way to remember is J. Jeroboam is the northern. It's the opposite of what you would expect. All right? J, Jerusalem, that's Rehoboam. Jeroboam is the northern kingdom. All right? It's the opposite of what you'd expect. That's the easy way to remember it. That's how I've remembered it, so maybe that'll help you. However, here's the problem. Jeroboam is in opposition against the southern kingdom. And the place of worship was Jerusalem. That puts him at a great disadvantage right out of the gate. Why? Because the people in the northern kingdom are going to have to journey to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. That's why. Well, he didn't like that plan. So what does he do? He sets up a temple annex. 
my words, in direct violation of what God commands. Listen to what happens, verses 26 to 30. Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. It's like a civil war. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold, and he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough, bad leaders. <laughs> what? The people should have rebelled, told them no. Well, you've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. And this thing became a sin. For the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples in the high places, again, in direct violation of the worship of the living God. It's been going on for a long time. It's mentioned in Hosea 8. The reasons for God's judgment, they're sowing all of these evil things into their lives. God is watching. He sees it. He is going to respond. And he does. Well, what do we learn then? Well, I frame this entire sermon around that singular verse right in the middle of the chapter. Verse 7, and that there they will reap the very whirlwind of their sinful behavior. Again, listen to the words that are penned there. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The picture is one of sowing and reaping. Again, I'm not a farmer and I know little to nothing about it. However, I do know that ordinarily when one plants a seed of corn in the ground, it will reap corn. It's a safe bet anyway. If I'm wrong, someone correct me later. It certainly does not reap oranges. The same is true for our lives. It is a spiritual principle that the Apostle Paul gives in Galatians chapter 6. You reap unrighteousness, you will reap. You, if you sow unrighteousness, you will reap it. And we need to heed that very carefully. In our passage before us, the people of old, the church of old, sowed unrighteousness in their lives. As such, they reaped the just judgment of a holy God. The people of this world are sowing unrighteousness every day. They will reap the whirlwind if they do not repent. The same is true for you and me. We're not immune to the spiritual principle that's all over the Bible. Oh, but I'm a Christian, so no, it doesn't matter. You sow unrighteousness in your life and you will reap the whirlwind of God's judgment and discipline. Not because he hates you. Just think of the passage as we discuss these and reviewing them just very quickly. First, false hopes. Have you sown false hopes because you know certain things about God, but you do not know the living and true God? Look at your life. Nay, look at your heart. Do you long for obedience? Do you mourn in dwelling sin, plead with the mercies of God in sincerity and truth, or are you just going through the motions? Some of you are. How can you say that? Because I know you. I'm your pastor. You're sowing destruction. The problem is your heart. It needs to, it needs to change. Stop sowing false hopes into your life because it won't save you. Second, false leadership. Men, elders, and deacons in the church, I'm addressing you directly, of course. Are you sowing a right motive and a right attitude as you seek to serve in this capacity as an officer of the church? In other words, who is your allegiance? Where is your allegiance? Is it to me? Because it better not be, but it needs to be the Lord and King and head of the church. What are you sowing? Are you sowing the... The applause of men because you have a title in the church? Surely you have your reward. Not the reward I'm looking for, and it shouldn't be the one you're looking for either. 
Are you serving at the good pleasure of the king? Or is it for your own gain? Third, false help. What kind of sowing are you doing here? Are you seeking help in the God of heaven or the things of this world? Look, we're all tempted in that direction. That's why John writes that in his first letter. And he says, stop loving the world. He's writing to Christians. You know, next Sunday, that sowing is going to get tested in the church. Every year it happens. Every year ministers, not everyone, probably not a lot of them, some, me, warn the church, look, it's Super Bowl Sunday. No, it's not. It's the Lord's Day. Churches will shut down. They won't worship in the evening because they think their help is in a football. That's what they're communicating. Their help is in the commercials that they find humorous and funny. Their help is in the popcorn and the pizza and the barbecued wings that they're going to eat. All of it is sensual. All of it is worldly. All of it is in direct violation of what God commands for His Sabbath. Where are you seeking your help? Dads, moms. Is it in the God of heaven? Or is it in the enemies of the God of heaven? Fourth, false religion. Is your Christianity merely a show? Look, I know the temptation. I do this for a job. You don't think I understand how easy it is to realize that I get paid to do this, and so it would be so easy just to play the part so I can keep getting paid. It's a real temptation. There, I've been transparent with you. But it ought never be. False religion is plastered all over the walls of churches. Dead and dying churches. There's no authentic Christianity. There wasn't here. And sadly in the church, there isn't there. Too often. Are you here because you want to be? Well, not every week. Okay, fair enough. I don't want to be here every week either, believe it or not. So I don't even want to stand up here every week, believe it or not. I know you're thinking, what? What's true? Ask my wife. I'm calling in sick, I'll tell her in the morning. Who are you going to call? I'm going to call the pastor. I'll send myself a text message. I'm not coming. I wrestle with sin like you do. But at the end of the day, I still, there's something there. It's driving me onward to be here. Do you want to be here? False worship happens every day in pews all over America. In the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, people merely attend. And they can't wait for the pastor to stop talking so they can go do what they want to do. Do you merely come? Go through the motions? Or do you really desire to worship the living God of heaven and earth? Know how vitally important this time is for your soul. God gave it to you. I didn't give it to you. This wouldn't have been my plan. But it was an infinite God's plan to bring a people together in one place on the Lord's day to do what we do here. Why? Because you need it, that's why. He doesn't need it. The rocks will worship him if you won't. It's not a problem. Do you come knowing your need? What are you sowing in your life? Maybe some of these hit a nerve as they hit me, just like they hit you. Well, what do you do? Throw up your hands, give up. Assyria's coming, we're dead. No. You see, if the people had repented as the trumpet was moving to the lips of the trumpeter, It never would have happened. They would have been spared the judgment. God is gracious. He doesn't treat us as you and I deserve. But they didn't repent, did they? We know what happens. You can repent. You can look to the God of heaven. There is hope in Christ. That's why he came. Because we are always left to ourselves 
putting our trust in false hopes. Uh, we have a false religion. We have false worship. We have a host of things that are, are sowing destruction. That's why we need Jesus. And the solution isn't try harder. It's to look to the God of heaven like the tax collector and simply cry out the simplest of words, be merciful to me, I'm a sinner. And he will be. He will relent of the disaster for anyone who humbles himself before the God of heaven. So don't be deceived. God will not be mocked. Whatever you sow, you will reap. God's desire for you in these things is that you sow righteousness. And so you plead for help, not from the enemies of the God of heaven, not like the Old Testament church did. No, no. You plead for help from the Spirit of the living God. He will give it because He has promised to do so. Don't sow unrighteousness. Sow godliness into your lives. Amen. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. And though this chapter is very pointed and it's hard, and we see ourselves far too often in these things, we would pray that You would turn our hearts to You in true, genuine authenticity. We would love You as You have told us. We know we fall short of all of these things, and so we thank You for the Savior who has done all that we could never do. And we pray as followers of Him that You would give us much more of Your Spirit, more grace, Lord, to do what You have told us. May you help us to sow godliness, righteousness in our lives, our families, our jobs, wherever we find ourselves. May we do it because you are worthy of every ounce of our being. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.